0: Welcome to the Wild Health podcast. The EU funded Wide project aims to conduct research on pervasive e health and establish a sustainable network of research and dissemination across Europe. You can know more about the project on our webpage wildhealth.eu, YouTube, or Twitter. Our guest speaker today is Kyle Montagu, an associate professor in computer and information sciences at Northumbria University. In this talk, he will discuss the design of Qband a democratised, open and customizable wearable device to support symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Let's dive in.
1: So, yeah, I I confessed to Tiago just before uh, he let the rest of you in the room that I I sort of re-engineered my talk just today, um, uh, partly because I, I didn't think it was up to snuff and I thought there was more interesting things I could say. Um, As Tiago's already said, I'm I'm not uh, exclusively a healthcare researcher, I come from a sort of checkered past of working on different projects, but I've always had an interest in healthcare technologies, um, but very much from that sort of human centered approach and I work very collaboratively with um, people and in fact that, that's another confession for today as well. The work I'm talking about today is not, it's not just mine. Uh, this, is, this is work that actually has is, is resulted from extensive collaboration with a really talented group of people, uh, Tiago included, and others on the call as well. Uh, I see Andre and Diogo as well, and many, many more. Uh, I'll try and make sure that I give credit where credit's due as I go. Um, but as I say, that these are the sort of collective efforts uh, of the team, um, which is always nice to, to sort of share. And then the other side to this as well is that actually this um, democratizing healthcare technologies, actually this was a conversation that Tiago and I started many years ago um, and, and it sort of evolved back and forth between the two of us and we've sort of chipped away at this, uh, this sort of vision for, for what we think healthcare technologies could should be um, through small little elements of other projects as well, but Today, I'm going to get a chance as well to talk about the first real funding that we've secured to, to really push this forward as well. And so this project around Parkinson's, and I'll use that as a bit of a case study to hopefully give a bit of structure to, as I say, this sort of vision for for what dem- democratized healthcare technologies could and should be. Um, I already apologize to the start if there is an eruption, so sorry, please, somebody just notify me. I'll keep an eye on things if there's a hand up and I'll, I'll try and sort of prevent uh, those disruptions too much. And likewise, if you've got questions throughout, I'm happy to take interruptions. So that's, that's never a bother. Uh, yeah, so before I start, uh, as Tiago mentioned, I, I'm from uh, Human-Computer Interaction, so so I'm very much interested in human set design. I work on a broad range of projects and 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 topics, uh, not, not everything in the healthcare um, domain. Um, more recently I've definitely done a lot more in sort of health and social care um, however for me what I'm really interested in is the way that we sort of design and configure these technologies and, and how we use technology in sort of unorthodox and interesting ways um, and, and as a result I get to collaborate with a lot of different people so some of the examples on the screen are projects that I've been part of you know we've done things from small scale bespoke pieces of digital jewelry right through to large scale systems and infrastructures that we've tried to roll out and and some genuine interventions that we've sort of put in place. So, some of the healthcare technologies we deployed in Lebanon with refugees and whatnot. So, I've got a sort of wide range of experiences and skills. And, and i think you know i always struggle to try and see well what is my path and my my, my value in these projects and, and i think you know it's, it's, it's sort of trying to pull on some of those things that we do and see how that might also be useful somewhere else um and, and and sort of that that process of of how we think about the tooling and and the processes uh, in which we involve um our participants in the design of these systems and technologies and and that's very much the the sort of mantra and the focus for me in my research is is that i, I want to be working on meaningful things Things. I'm really interested in these sort of critical social challenges. And I'm really interested in, in not how I harness the power of digital technologies, but actually how do I support others being able to sort of channel and use those digital technologies and services as a way then to, to address um, the sort of challenges and problems that they're experiencing as well. So I work very closely, um, both with, uh, as I say, collaborators and other disciplines, but also very hands on with um, participants themselves to try and tackle these design challenges. Um, yeah, so, so today in particular, though, I'm, I'm going to try and keep the focus on healthcare technologies. Um, and a, a, as I say, this sort of evolved out of some thinking that um, Tiago and I had, where we sort of looked at the way that we we played with technology and the way that we tinkered with technology and the idea of, of you know, how could we start to think about these healthcare technologies, not being something that actually they're sort of used by us as technologists and researchers, but actually how might that sort of tinkering, that self-exploration and play be something that, the individuals themselves um, living with these life lifelong and chronic conditions, the things that they start to sort of do for themselves. In, in the field of HCI, we always recognize that actually the, the participants, the users that we're working with, they are expert in their own right and, and they bring something to the table. Um, and, and I think you know, we've always got this weird sort of power imbalance when we think about the design of technology and when we conduct research in that actually we, we, you know, we, we satisfy our agenda quite often, but not always theirs, um, or, or, or theirs are sometimes compromised you know, in, in order to ensure that we can sort of do the research we do. And really what we're interested with this and, and, and with a sort of lighter, larger um framing of work was around actually, well, what if we could what if we could change that that balance? What, what if we could adjust that imbalance? And what if actually we could give over more agency then to those individuals? And, and, and what if they themselves could start to be the champions then of the designing their own healthcare technologies and interventions? Um, and, and this is this is an interesting strategy when you think about the sort of push and the desire for us to move more towards these sort of personalized uh, approaches to care and management of health as well. Well, actually, who better to to design for you than yourself, um, as long as we can provide you those sort of tools and those infrastructures to allow you to do that. So, So that was a sort of the, the, the general nuts and bolts of, of that conversation that we had over coffees many, many years ago, um, and, and it's been something that sort of um, keeps sort of steering us and directing us um, down this path. Uh, so I, I've got a very simplistic representation of how digital innovation happens. Um, so, so. Um, now, this is sort of loosely based on some of the work you might have seen around these sort of uh, speculative design and these sort of possible and plausible futures. Uh, so, so, if we, if we take, um, for example, here, our, our sort of what is possible with digital technology, so, so if we start at the, 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 at the point of that invention of that new technology, that innovation, what is possible is, is really open. There's a lot of scope and a lot of flexibility. Um, and then, as we start to progress and we start to sort of make decisions and refinements to that technology, what we see is actually is what is possible. Possible starts to sort of diminish quite significantly, and instead we we sort of find ourselves at a particular target, we're we're aiming for something. Um, And this is the way that most digital innovation tends to happen, Um, and it's because that's a lot of the time, you know, these things are within sort of small groups, It, it takes that specialist knowledge, that specialist understanding in order to work with and use those. Um, it takes a long time before these things start to open and include sort of wider groups and those analogous communities, and then a longer time yet before these things maybe even appear in sort of consumer technologies or products that we experience. And by that point, they're so refined and directed at something that actually it's it's very difficult to imagine them doing anything beyond that. Um, and and. and you know, for for, for a lot of us, we we look at these things and and we might think, well, great, that's perfect. That's exactly what I needed. That solves that problem I've got. And, and, you know, we're the lucky ones that share those problems with the visionaries that came up with those technologies. But actually, um, just as there's there's few of us that actually these things work out well for, there is a large population of people who actually needed something completely different. Um, And and the danger you've got by by us following this sort of very simplistic way of of thinking about digital innovation, the way that we create things, and the the, the cut off point at where it's possible then for us to pivot and redirect our attention and, and to achieve those things is m- much earlier in that process. It's, it's it's much earlier in the sort of design and innovation stage, um, and and it's not necessarily something that's accessible to a wider range of people. Um, so so you know typically we would think about you know when these things start to appear and become available to to mass consumers at the point where they're almost done. You know, there still might be these tweaks and updates and things happening, but for the most part, it, it's a rounded off product. Um, so what, what we're interested in here then is, is you know, through, through some of this sort of reengineering or tooling or through alternative approaches to how we design technologies, can we, can we reverse time? Can, can we find a way then to revert back to, to an earlier point where there was more potential and more scope or, or more wiggle um uh, in in the sort of uh, the definition then and, and the, uh, of, of those systems, those technologies, those innovations, such that we could imagine you know these either projects forking from it or this idea of, of opening up new avenues and new directions for that technology um, ones that don't require us going all the way back to the start and starting again. Um, so, so what we're really interested in is saying well can we can we bring the users further into um, this and, and earlier into that process uh, and in order to do that, then we need strategies and tools and ways of working with then, those those potential users of those technologies. And this is not something new that I've just invented. this is this is strategies that we see being used. It's not necessarily strategies that we see being used and adopted widely, particularly in the sort of uh, in the sort of commercial sector um, because it's it's very time consuming and costly. But actually, if you look at a lot of the work that goes on within um, human computer interaction research, then, you know, we would argue that we, we do a lot of this already, this idea of that human-centred design. Um, so uh, uh, apologies uh, if, I, if I'm sort of speaking to the choir here, as it were. Um, but I, I, I thought it may be useful just to sort of talk about some of the strategies and techniques we use. So a common one that we talk about when we do is human-centred design process. And, and you might be familiar with this as well, is this idea of the double diamond, yeah? So, so what we have is these sort of phases that we think about in terms of that design and development process. So, so that first phase is that sort of... Um, Scoping out and, and, and trying to identify then the problem. So, scoping the problem and trying to really understand what is the challenge then that we're trying to solve. So, what is the intention then of our healthcare technology? What, what problem does it try to, to, to take care of for us? So, so we, we spend time in this space sort of researching, working with users and, and potential users, or building on top of, as I say, existing research and literature to try and drill down as to what that problem is. So, sorry, so widen out and, and understand in detail what that problem is and then we shift into a phase of focusing in okay so that's a really wide challenge it's going to be difficult to build a technology that does all of those things so instead then we start to collapse and we focus in on the particular key challenge that we're looking at this is the problem that Um, you know is top priority for everyone the one that we need to address and solve it's definitely not the one that we're just more interested in doing it probably is but the idea then is that we focus in on a particular aspect of problem and then at that point we start to widen up again we start to then open our eyes to thinking about then the potential solutions the way that we might start to work towards tackling that and and how might our new technology that we've been inventing how might that become part of that process and how can we innovate around that to create something new a new healthcare solution Um, and again a phase of widening looking for new inspiration drawing on those things and then a phase of focusing in again focusing in again. Um, and and all the while every time we focus in you know both in the the sort of problem scoping phase and also here in the technology phase we're doing this based on us making decisions and, and every time we make a decision about one thing being included or, or something being excluded we're potentially then either saying that yes that's within the remit of what we're going to look at or this is totally outside of scope and therefore we are we're sort of cutting off any future possibilities that might have followed through that arm or might have existed down that path. So, so by closing as we do, um, as I say, we, we sort of um, limit then what is that potential future wiggle uh, down, further down the line. Um, and as I say, this is a, a, a common strategy we see right through. It's definitely to some degree something that you'll see happening as well with most products. Um, you know, and, and in fact, in, in some cases, even when these things are live systems, they still like to use people as guinea pigs and test these things on us as well. But I think the interesting thing here is around actually how we approach this and, and who has that control and that power. You know, it still is very much in, in the sort of remit of us as the designers, developers, the technologists and um, to make those decisions and and, and 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 you know even when we are working with users we try our best to accommodate them but actually sometimes it's impossible to accommodate everything we have to make a decision you know if, if there's one thing i know it's that developers love very loose and vague um, technical requirements of systems that makes it really easy to build software. Definitely not, you know. So we need to refine. At some point, we have to make those those decisions and we have to close in. Um, but in doing so, we're accepting that actually um, this solution, you know, isn't necessarily going to be viable for problems down that path or or, or taking us to that possible future there. Um, so, so as I say, we sort of accept these um, a, a, as we go. Um, now. By the time we get to that end point as well, you know, the the trouble we've got as well is when we hit that sort of development phase and we're starting to build technologies and then refine how those technologies function and work. By that point, the wheels are in motion. You know, We've made a lot of decisions, we've potentially invested a lot of time and resources in this. Um, we're pretty much set on the fact that this is what the technology has to be. Um, like most things, it's hard and expensive to start again or to go back and change these things. So although you do get sort of closed loop cycles, and again, something that's encouraged in human centered of design, um, you do get to a point where actually you say, right, we, we can't really go back and change the following. Um, we're, we're too far gone. Um, So, uh, again, these sort of um, uh, limitations or or, or issues that we experience then um, through this digital innovation mean that actually uh, we we have to, you know, funnel in and close the door very early on. And and, and this is particularly true as well if you think of um, digital technologies that require hardware components. You know, software is great and it's it's very flexible, but hardware, we have to make decisions quite early on and often um, in order to sort of satisfy those sort of manufacturing pipelines and whatnot as well. So, uh, and in fact, yeah, on, on that, the, the hardware side of things is, is incredibly tough. Uh, so I just want to sort of shine a light in this paper is this some work by um, Steve Hodges and Nicholas Chancel from Microsoft Research. I think this was published in 2019, but something that I've talked about a couple of times with um, Steve through earlier collaborations. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the things he, that they explore and they talk about in this work is when we think about digital innovation in, in hardware in particular, um, there are tremendous ch- challenges and barriers and in order to transition from a, a prototype that we have, so, so if we are sort of creating a brand new novel prototype of a healthcare technology, in order to get from that phase into large-scale product manufacturing and, and this thing existing, um, there are N number of complexities with that. These things don't just seamlessly translate. It isn't a pipeline as much as you'd love to think it is. It's definitely not. And uh, one of the things they talk about as well in terms of this sort of long-tail hardware is this idea that, you know, in addition to us thinking about and having these products that we see that are, you know, large-scale, high-demand, um, um, sort of focused products that you know that, that you know fit to our economic models, fit to the way we think about scaling up manufacturing, and producing these devices, we have a lot of things that exist in that long tail. These more niche things that are bespoke and more personalised and. You know that area of hardware is probably where we're going to find some of those really interesting golden nuggets and innovations around actually how we address and and, and do deliver on that personalized healthcare. It's not necessarily going to be something that is a sort of generic one-size-fits-all consumer solution. It's, it's probably going to sit somewhere in that long tail. Um, so what they talk about in this work, actually, is sort of some of the, the, the challenges and the barriers and, and a sort of call to action around actually how we need to rethink our approaches to um, how we how we sort of transition in hardware and how we scale up um sort of manufacturing process. So, so they talk about this idea of having stronger communities, this sort of tighter integration between partners, so some so more open uh, relationships between people around how we build and do things. Um, improvements around obviously the sort of teaching and tooling of the, these materials and, and, and the availability of then the, the sort of uh, software and techniques then that are needed in order to think about and, and innovate the hardware. Um, and then the other interesting one was around these sort of new manufacturing solutions for, for small batches. So what they talked about was this idea of sort of more modular designs. and Could you could you reappropriate things? And, and again, this is not necessarily something brand new and novel by them. We've, we've seen some examples of that sort of modular, constructive approach to technology. And in fact, for most people in the room who tinker with technology, you know, you, you'll be familiar with development uh, toolkits like Arduinos and Raspberry Pis that embrace that type of approach, allow us to sort of quickly prototype and model things uh, without having to always go off and bespoke build or buy these, um, these PCBs, these these sort of dedicated sensors and hardware. We've got tools that are available and accessible to us that allow us to experiment with that and do these things. Um, And and actually what they are saying is that we need more of that further down the manufacturing process as well. You know, so if you think about the sort of fabrication and molding that might need to go into um, a device in order to sort of package it and make it sort of safe for use and things as well, you know, do we have similar sort of modular approaches and toolkits there? Um, in addition to what, what they talk about in this paper, I would also add that we need a few more things. Um, so so one of the things that uh, I think, uh, and, and others that we sort of talk around this project as well, we we think actually sort of benefits this, is this idea of, of sort of viewing hardware more in line with the way we think about software as well and the approach we take to software. So so this idea of open source projects and software is definitely nothing new. We've had it for, for you know, decades. We're starting to see more and more of that in the hardware space as well. And again, this would speak to the idea of those sort of stronger communities, that tighter working together. And um, in addition to that, is there ways that we might think about that reappropriation and reconfiguration of existing pieces of hardware as well? Um, so, so rather than always thinking that we need to go and create something bespoken new, is it this idea that actually we can find a new value in those existing products and services? And can we re engineer them? And do we have the tools and the access to do that? Um, And and if we start to think in that way, then perhaps what we can start to see then is is create a sort of higher potential value in some of that long tail um, and make that a bit more viable for these types of technologies to exist as well. Um, But equally, by doing this, we potentially allow ourselves longer in that innovation pipeline to really decide on what this technology is for. So so actually, we can can sort of reappropriate that to fit for something else. And as I say, that's definitely a sort of trend and a pattern we see happening quite a lot in, in software and, and in sort of um, uh, research in that space as well. You know, I'm guilty of doing some of that research myself. So looking at how we sort of reappropriate and, and reconfigure these existing platforms and services. So, so what we want to see as well is something similar around the way we think about hardware. Um, and, and, and this as I say, is a sort of interesting route forward um, to, to how we um, can potentially achieve these sort of democratized technologies. Uh, oh yes, I'm supposed to round it all off into a nice, clean vision and make it easy and digestible for you here. Let me try. Um, so, so in terms of democratizing healthcare technologies, what we're really talking about then is giving over that access. Um, so, so it's not it's not enough that I have access to play and sync with these things. The idea is that we want anyone and everyone to be able to have that, um, to to, to afford them that luxury and that ability. So so how can we empower, in particular, if we think about people living with these chronic conditions, so if we take something like Parkinson's disease, how can we empower everyone living with Parkinson's disease to actually use and wield technology um, like, like any other tool or material, in in the way that sort of is best for them to allow them to have the sort of greatest possibility then of creating something that actually improves their quality of life or helps them to better manage and understand the condition or to learn and explore for themselves rather than what we have at the moment, which is a bit more transactional, whereby it's designed and dictated and, and, and applied to them. So, so actually, can we sort of, um, you know, in some ways, uh, rebalance the relationship between us as digital innovators and researchers with then those end consumers and users and, and think of them more as those uh, prosumers or you know, producers consumers of, of these technologies. And, and in fact, the goal I always joke about is, eventually I want to do myself out of a job know so if we do a good enough job of this and we make these technologies so easy and accessible that anyone can do it then why would you need why would you need me anymore why would you need me doing these research projects everyone would just be doing it for themselves and and that's that's the ultimate goal um so it'd be nice to achieve it but hopefully not before my retirement otherwise my wife might be a bit pissed off um okay so in terms of some of the inspiration for this work um yeah so i've got to give credit where credit's due so so uh, I, i myself have a chronic condition so i have i have arthritis uh, and I've, I've, I've experienced sort of uh, arthritis and, and, and pain in my joints for a number of years. And as a result, I've been really interested in, in these sort of support groups and these community groups. I do a lot of self-experimentation. I take advantage of the fact that I am a technologist and I try and do things myself. One of the community groups that I came across was this group here called Patients Like Me. Um, and it is a social network and it's set up for people who are living with um, health conditions to be able to socialize and talk with um, other people who have the same condition as them, who are living with those same conditions, and and, and you know in, in its in its initial conception, it was about actually just being able to meet people. So so I think actually the founders, um, I want to say it, it was his brother had uh, was diagnosed with ALS, and he wanted to talk with other people with ALS, and that's where it sort of emerged from. But but now actually. If you go to patients like me, what you'll see is that they have community groups, these communities of interest around a wide range um, of conditions. And uh, within that, these sort of forums, they're a real mix, you know, from from anything from people sort of exchanging tips and ideas on how to cope with and manage with a condition, talking about, you know, this idea of of up and coming research, things that look promising, right through to um, groups that are also themselves driving their own research studies and doing their own research studies. And, and you know, when I first heard about this, I, I was blown away. This idea of these sort of genuinely patient-led researchers, not talking about co-design, not just talking about that sort of, fair weather involvement of participants without really meaning it this is genuinely um, communities themselves getting together and going beyond just an N of one study and actually trying to organize themselves collectively t- to to conduct new studies and research and, and do trials um, and and they the, the really cool thing as well with this is that that space has become um this sort of this nice boundary where also these um these groups are engaging and working with researchers um, who are helping them to publish and get that message out there as well. So this idea of of it not just being something that's happening in isolation, it's not just about that community understanding these things as well, but actually they're using this as a way to to then published and producing knowledge and to challenge actually some of the things that are going on elsewhere. And I think that there are some great examples of them, you know, getting their hands on medications for, for, for particular conditions and drugs and showing that actually that the, the lab studies that were conducted were nonsense, that actually that the reality is this is the data. So really fantastic, definitely worth reading their story. What's really cool here is that um, and as I say was inspired by this, was that the fact that um, the strategies that people were taking. So, so so if you read into some of the forums, what you're hearing about is these sort of ingenious sort of make do and mend appropriations of how they were making do with um, what was available to them on hand. So so they weren't, this wasn't a group of technologists who were in here who had sort of just decided we're gonna do stuff. Some of these were just people who who themselves were motivated and interested. Um, and thought that they could sort of cobble together some some aspects um, that they would need in order to conduct that research, and, and that's a generalization because there are other examples where they have got you know precision built tools that they're using as well, and, and it's very sophisticated that relationship. But there are a lot of examples where it's it sort of it, it's grown from nothing. It's grown from that interest and that itch and that desire, and and from from somebody being motivated enough to sort of find solutions and just find other things out there that they could join together. And, and you know some of those examples were them using you know, existing bits of technology, things off the shelf that they could use to an extent or creating their own sort of questionnaires on things like Google Forms and other sort of online services as well. Um, and what's been really amazing as I say, is that it sort of, it's grown from this idea of self-experimentation and people talking about what worked for them and, and, and what they did to them, actively sort of starting to challenge and, and produce then sort of research outcomes and um, using, you know, what tools were available to them then working with researchers to try and increase their capacity in terms of how they might have analyzed that data or how they also then publish and and get that information out there. Um, So this idea of those sort of collaborations that take place as well, that, that bringing new capacities into that community, it's a different way of working for us as researchers because actually we're, instead of being in the driver's seat and setting our agenda, the idea is that we really are, you know, the passenger along for the ride that's hopefully trying to sort of pay their way and demonstrate their value and support then the agenda of those individuals. And this excites me to no end, you know, this, this is fascinating, you know, being somebody who's lived with a condition and, and for, for years talked about how actually when the weather's bad, my joints definitely feel worse. And then not seeing any research being done on that. OK, there's been some sense. But, but this idea that actually the, the sort of communities out there are people who are talking about these things and yet they're not getting attention. Researchers are not funding those things and they're not spending time on it. So actually they've started doing it for themselves. And, and, and that's what's quite exciting here. Um, and and say the other really interesting thing with that relationship as well is how they view then the universities and the researchers. So so framing us more as a service as opposed to what we typically have which is us taking from participants so this idea of what capacity can researchers bring so we bring that 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 trust that authority then that sort of stamp of approval in terms of results that we publish Um, and 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 therefore it gives them the credibility um, in terms of the type of work that they're doing and that credibility is really important um, both in in the sort of types of tooling and, and the activities that they use but also in the way that the sort of results are communicated as well um, so yeah, so, so, so the light bulb for me as well was, okay, Can we then, you know, can I dedicate myself um, for the next 30 years or however long it takes for me to hit retirement age um, to to basically create better tools and processes then to help people at this to to do this type of work, this type of research? And and is that then the framing of what a a democratised healthcare technology needs to be and that agenda needs to be around, not not just satisfying what I'm interested in, but as I say, this idea of of how we really open the floodgates um, for for this type of behaviour en masse. Um, and so, so can we can we help them achieve that? Um, other source of inspiration, then. So this is a a really neat um, open source project. Um, so so this is called Gadget Bridge. Um, you, you've maybe used it yourself. So um, a lot of the studies we were seeing in the the patients that being a lot of stuff we were hearing from participants in conversations was around how they were using sort of personal tracker devices. You had limited access as to what you could get out of those, um, and you know if you if you didn't know software engineering, you couldn't sort of work with the sort of um, building apps to do things it was really difficult for you to get at that data um, and you were sort of limited in what you could extract from some of the online services uh, that's changed a little bit now that landscape but at the time of sort of gadget bridge being created that's what they were trying to tackle and address um, so what they have is this amazing open source um, applications so, so you can go you can poke around and use the source um, but but their mission was around actually allowing people to really unlock and access the data from their personal wearable devices. So, so the intention here was that they could get access to that raw data and raw information from it. And and this is really, really important because it means then that instead of you being sort of restricted and limited by the sort of summaries analysis that you're provided by companies like Fitbit or, um, oh, I don't know, the Jawbone and those other sort of fitness trackers, band and whatnot, instead of being limited by them and restricted by them in terms of where your data goes and what you have access to, you would have access then to to the sort of raw source. Well, I say raw, the the sort of computed values from that wearable device that you could use for your own intention and purposes as well. this is great you know in terms of this as long as you have a smartphone you can sort of talk to that wearable device and you could extract the data from it and use this so so, you know this was ideal then for for people wanting to sort of do studies maybe relating to physical activity and movement uh they had a way now of accessing it's data the the challenge comes now when actually the the sort of the design of the wearable you know so so here we have this ability this sort of flexible smartphone application that can talk to this and do other things with data and give us um more more close access to that data but actually what if the wearable itself isn't really recording the data that we need or in the form that we need or communicating things in a way that actually are useful to us um, at that point you know we're, we're sort of we're limited and this is a sort of limitation of gadget bridge in that actually what it allows you to do is access the information but you're still at the mercy of um the algorithm that's been predefined by pebble or Mi band or amazfit you know whatever's running on that um, is is kind of what you get um, so point to some other work so yeah so this is in contrast to that and um, there's some really neat work that's uh, been going on uh, in uh, Carnegie Mellon University so Patrick Carrington and his team there um, have been exploring um, this idea of, of wearable devices that are sort of bespoke then to um, wheelchair athletes so recognizing that actually a fitbit that tells you steps is meaningless um, to a wheelchair athlete and actually isn't really going to give them anything of, of value in order to understand their performance and, and how they can improve in terms of their sport. Um, he and the team worked very closely with wheelchair athletes to rethink and, um, the, and, and design as I say a, a, a wearable or, or a sort of embedded technology that could be could be used um, by that community then to, to better understand their, physical performance and movement as well. So, so what they've created, as I say, is this new um, uh, technology that can be attached then to to the wheelchair itself and using the same types of sensors, but running a completely different set of algorithms, Um, they're able to compute then values that are meaningful and interesting then to those individuals. So rather than being interested in step counts, they may be interested actually in those sort of acceleration, deceleration of movement. Yeah. So much more interested in things that are connected with then the way that they live their lives and and the types of behaviours that they have, rather than as forcing, as I say, this sort of predefined algorithm that's designed to cater for the sort of mass majority. Um, What they were looking at was sort of could they design these sort of bespoke visualizations and 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 and, uh, compute values then that are of interest to that community Um, and again you might be saying okay well that's in this sort of niche long tail of technology you know in terms of wheelchair athletes uh, you know any anything sort of target that athletes in themselves are probably in that sort of niche community and um, so so therefore you know what's the broad appeal and actually that's what's really been quite exciting about this is that the work has continued and since then they've been exploring actually well, how might these values be meaningful to um, uh, wheelchair users in everyday life as well so in the same way that you know we saw these wearable sensors initially being targeted at again athletes for high performance refinement in terms of the way we do sport to now be in these sort of cheap consumer devices that we have that nag us all the time to, to, to move and do things. Um, well, th- there's the same potential and opportunity here for this bespoke piece of hardware that they've created. So what's interesting here is that they've sort of opened up this, this other potential avenue or route for this thing to be sort of scalable and potentially something that might be a sort of long-term viable solution. Um, The the thing I I will say is I've not been able to find out if this is an open source hardware project technology. I couldn't really find anything on it. Maybe others have heard of it and might know, but I wasn't able to find anything where I could access it. Um, But, as I say, this approach of creating that bespoke technology is an interesting one. Um, The danger or the challenges with this though is obviously is is the, the high end costs associated with that. Um, And and, and as I've mentioned before, that struggle of of how you transition through that sort of prototype to actually having then a a product or service that you ship. Um, So I'm gonna now um, talk about some of the work that uh, I wasn't directly involved in, but actually the team that I'm working with, this this work predates me actually, it's just before I joined um, Newcastle University Open Lab. Uh, and this is the sort of foundations for, for the case study in the project I'll talk about today as well. So PDQ was um, a project that was led by uh, Roisin McNanny, who's now at Monash University. She was uh, at Open Lab at the time. And this grew out of um, activities that she had been doing, she and her colleagues had been doing um, with local Parkinson support groups. Um, so, so they had been exploring, actually, um, through co-design, participatory design, uh, possible uses of existing digital technologies so they played with things like um, wearables like google glass they looked at things that were in sort of speech recognition being a speech and language therapist herself by background you know they explored a lot of stuff around that um, and they were interested to understand um, you know you know where and how people participants saw these technologies having value in their lives if at all and then equally trying to understand some of the challenges that they were experiencing and one of the things that came up um, across a number of these support groups was this idea that actually a uh, a, a real social challenge for them um, was, was actually around, uh, related to, to swallowing and drooling. Um, so uh, you, you might not realize I, I'm definitely doing a lot of it now because I'm talking loads, but um, you, know, you, you, you produce a lot of sal- saliva throughout the day and you have a sort of automatic response uh, that, that allows you then to sort of swallow that saliva. Saliva is really important in terms of your, your sort of hygiene of your mouth. Um, the, 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 the challenges we see then in, in some people with Parkinson's and quite a high population experience this symptom, is that actually that that cue, that automatic response to swallow, um, sometimes the, the body doesn't send that and they don't do these. And then as a result, what can happen is the sort of pooling of saliva in the mouth. Um, and and this, can, this can then have uh, one of two outcomes. So one is that it might cause sort of drooling. So the sort of external visibility then of, of saliva drooling on your face, which we be quite embarrassing, uh, in, particularly in social context. The other side as well is, is potentially even that choking, this idea of it going back to another way and, and causing a sort of choking as well. Um, so this was a problem that a, a number of people in these support groups talked about. And there wasn't a whole lot of research going on. There, there was some interventions. So there was um, uh, sort of more invasive treatments uh, that existed. Um, so treatments that would actually um, reduce and inhibit then the production of saliva as a way to reduce then the symptom. Um, so, so the sort of the the, the nice sort of uh, I guess a healthcare solution to this was we'll just stop saliva production and then there will be no more drooling. Uh, the problem with that then is that if you stop saliva, you start to impact on other things. So as I say, it causes problems for the health and the hygiene of the mouth. Uh, and, And again, that sort of dryness of mouth can be uncomfortable in its own right. Yes, okay, I'm not physically drooling, but actually I now experience these other symptoms. My quality of life is still inhibited by this. Um, so what was interesting is, is the group were interested to explore, you know, could, could there be a device or a wearable um, to help with this, and, and, and if so, what could it do? So so, so they worked, and, and actually a lot of this idea and the ideation came from these, these participants themselves, so they really, you know, at this idea of having a technology that told them when to swallow, so could it vibrate and tell them when it was time to swallow? So what the team worked on is they, they developed then this bespoke piece of hardware, so, so OpenLab and a long history of making these sort of wearable and embedded devices. Um, so what they did is they, they, they sort of created this all entirely in the lab, so it's a 3D printed enclosure, they're using off-the-shelf aftermarket sort of straps that are attached to that, so everything was sort of designed to sort of fit within those tolerances, and then the PCB, they sort of uh, hand soldered in the labs themselves as well. And what they had was a device then that um, had a button that allowed you to turn it on, and it would periodically then vibrate, and it would give that cue to somebody to them um, to swallow, and then it would stop, and then it would vibrate every time it was time for them to swallow, um, and then when, when they no longer needed the intervention, they could turn it off, and that was the design of the wearable. Um, so this first study was all conducted in sort of lab conditions where people would sort of use the device for a short period of time. Um, And and what the team were able to show is that actually this is an effective intervention. This is a useful way of doing things and that actually the cue that was being delivered was sufficient then that that, that they were able to to swallow and and reduce the symptoms of drooling. Um, So so from that point of view, it was a good success. The challenge then came around actually how they transitioned from this prototype into actually thinking about this. I think that might be my builders. Uh, Can I get I'll ask you to wing for me now, Tiago, if that's all right. I'll be two seconds here.
0: Well maybe I'll sing. <laughs> that's it a little bit for Kyle. Well, I one thing, I, I, may, I may tell you that the problem here was obviously that people then wanted to appropriate this and change the type of cues and the type of vibration that, that they would receive or pause it in some of the times and this was um, completely closed. And so they didn't have any way to, to, to change those uh, and to create more complex ways of interacting with these cues. And then, well, slide is over, so I can't can't tell you what's what's next.
1: That was fun, apologies.
0: I Uh, sang a little bit, so you can continue. Oh,
1: good, good, okay, well. Uh, yes, so, so the challenge came then around actually how we transition from this prototype that we're making by hand in the lab to then thinking actually how do you scale this up to be a sensible solution. So this cost, I think the sort of raw components of the parts at the time, uh, we're looking at, uh, I, I want to say maybe £100, £150 to, to produce this device, a very, very simple device that had a battery, a vibrotactile motor and a button. Um, oh. So it's quite an expensive um, solution to this. Uh, And and as I say, there wasn't necessarily a clear path as to how this would scale up. Um, And and this became, as I say, this sort of project that sat in the background. And and, uh, the the thing that when I joined the lab and started talking with the groups that we sort of kept looking back at and try to revisit. And this was, as I say, the sort of start of some of the discussions as well with Tiago at that point. Um, And we were very lucky that actually one of the things that came up um, around about that time um, was there was then a call that was announced from Parkinson's UK and what they were interested in is they wanted these non-drug approaches so they were interested to understand actually um, how you could use digital technologies um, to, to support people with Parkinson's and, and address concerns uh, so, so quality of life concerns or or looked at actually how you might support um, uh, provide social support so it's a sort of wide range for this And this became then an opportunity for us um, now to, instead of sort of working on some of this stuff in the background, to actually think about, right, well, let's try and get some some focused funding around this to try and transition from this prototype we had um, of this PDQ device into something then that actually we could get into the hands of people with Parkinson's. So so what we wrote um, was this proposal uh, to to run an 18-month study, which we're in at the moment. Um, we said that we would, we would produce 3,000 of these devices and that we would involve people with Parkinson's in, in the sort of um, deployment and, and sort of design alongside that of these, this technology. Um, and then we would evaluate then this, this wearable queueing evaluation in the wild. So instead of doing it in a lab setting, we do this in the wild. Um, and the other big commitment we made as well is that everything we did, we would make open source. And what we had in our heads was not just that we wanted to make it available so that researchers could access it, we wanted to be at the point where actually this could be something that could exist then as a product. We want to find ways then that we could connect up those, those sort of streams to allow this to be a, a, a possible technology and tool that could exist beyond the, the funding that we had for those 18 months uh, and could this become then a platform that the people with partisans themselves could build on and use for other things. Could it be something that future researchers might engage with and use? So could we create then um, this sort of democratized healthcare technology as the start then for something different and something new, and, and as I say, that's the sort of the the, the big pitch that we went to, um, and, and you know what we said that the technology do. So the, so the purpose we gave it was around this idea of managing those drooling symptoms, trying to find a way of doing that in a very sort of discreet and socially acceptable way. And and the other thing was around making this accessible to people, so making this something that, that could be available. So so it wasn't it couldn't have a really expensive price tag. So. As I say, that was our, our sort of focus for this. And um luckily Parkinson's UK were really on board with this, which has been great. So so it's it's successfully been funded. Um in terms of the people involved in this project, so it's so as I said before, we work very collaboratively. So in addition to, to working with Tiago uh, and, and uh, Andre and I see Ugo online as well and our advisory board and Diogo Branco is involved as well, You know from the Laziche Research Group, as well as that we've got collaborators in Newcastle University, uh, Northumbria University with me. And then we also work with a special interest group called uh, Digital Parkinson's. So these are um, people who are living with Parkinson's disease who themselves are also technologists and, and like to sort of they've got an interest in technology so um uh, some of the group you know have backgrounds in, in companies like Siemens you know and have done things with wearables and embedded technologies or ai machine learning as well so so it's a really interesting team around us in addition to that so I, I realize I haven't put a one so there's, there's an NHS trust or so our, our national healthcare trust mm-hmm. And as I say, the plan for the project is to to have this be a national thing. So so we're doing the whole study as remote. We're posting these devices out to people. The apps will be available in the store. And the idea is that the study all happens uh, in in the real world, which is is really exciting. Um, And although we've recruited 3,000, we're going to recruit 3,000 people for this, the actual intervention part of the study is only on 300. So the wider 2,700 are really there to play with and experiment and think about new innovation and ideas for this technology, this device, and for them to, to really get their hands on with this. And, and that's something that you know you don't normally get to do uh, and, and early on in this design process where there's still scope to change what might then become a, a sort of product or service. So that was the sort of fun part with this one. Um, So uh, a a large amount of time had passed from uh, that first PDQ project where we sort of made the devices to then um, the sort of conception, this this new one and and these devices. Um, One of the things we were looking at was obviously was this next generation of these wearable devices. Um, So I think the original project took place in sort of 2016. um, And then we were looking then in I think 2019, it must have been when we we started looking again at these new devices. Um, And what we came across were these, Nice, sort of cheap, low cost um, uh, devices. Um, the, the PCBs themselves were being manufactured um, in, in China, so they weren't doing this ourselves manually uh, in house. Um, we were talking with uh, some of the manufacturers at the time around how we could potentially leverage some of their existing tooling and molding. Um, so, so the, the sort of tooling around how they sort of print and, and create those casings, how they make sure that they sort of secure them with waterproof and things. That typically is additional cost that you incur, and you have to go through an you know, extensive design process for that. So it's not just actually designing the onboard PCB; it's also making sure that everything else around that product, right down to the strap and the charging cable, um, all actually have the right tooling and whatnot that are needed. And, and you know you're talking thousands of pounds to produce that, even before you've even thought about getting the sort of certifications, the CE marks, and whatnot on these devices as well. So the, the the sort of the the barrier then to sort of getting from Uh, What is an open source design that we've been able to demonstrate that works um, and and is is entirely feasible and and, and has the performance we need to actually get into something that we could ship and safely provide to people, you know, there's all these huge other steps that are in there that, you know, we as researchers don't normally sort of have to deal with, but this was part of our project now so what we were interested in is, is, you know, could we could we approach this in the same way that we approached um, software technology? So rather than saying we're going to build the whole thing from scratch, you know, could we could we sort of take advantage of any of the elements that might have been open and available to us? Um, so in the conversations with this manufacturer, what we, what we agreed was that we could sort of take it if we change the form factor of our PCB, we could potentially use an existing design they had around the sort of molding and how they were producing things. And that was one way of bringing down the cost. Um, so, so what we had gone and what we managed to do then was to get a device that had the sort of specifications that you see on screen, so, so in addition to having the sort of vibrotactile tactile motor, we now have accelerometer that gives us, you know, quite detailed uh, understanding of movement, we've got Bluetooth 4.0, which was, you know, at the time great, um, BLE, uh, we had LEDs on there so we could do a little bit of communication to the interface. Much better battery life as well. So 30 days uh, battery that would have gone down when you start to use the viable tactile motor a bit more. But but in terms of the sort of device, it sort of touted that. Um, because it had Bluetooth and the the bootloader um, was open, we could also reprogram it, which was really great for us because it meant then that the firmware on top of the device was flexible and we could change that. So if we had to make a change in the study, we could update that. Likewise, if we come up with some new ideas for what we could do with the device, we could change that on the device. So it wasn't that this was printed on a device and immutable, we had access to change that. Um, And and the bit that made us really happy was the price, the cost. So we had managed to get the cost right down. So by by approaching in this way, we'd managed to bring the cost down to, to sub 20 pounds uh, at the time. So that, so these are 2020 costs, pandemic and chip shortages have probably changed things a lot. So, so I, wouldn't, I wouldn't quote me on what those would have been now if we had gone down that route, but but we didn't, unfortunately. So um, one of the things that happened is we, we did some test runs with this and we were doing some of the early development. Um, and because of the relationship we had where we were sort of borrowing and using their existing plans for things, um, anytime we did a new batch in new order that was sent to us, there was always subtle differences in changes made to the device. So it might have been the sort of placement of something, uh, something didn't quite fight this, fit the same way it did. The strap came back different one time, the charging cradle was different. And this was because, um, you know, much in the way that if you use an external API or service, if that person changes that API, then you need to accommodate and adapt to that as well. You know, you, the old one still doesn't exist. So, so we were seeing the same thing in terms of our, our approach to the hardware is that because they were sort of making these changes, we were then being susceptible to that downstream. Um, So so this was problematic and risky. And and what we quickly realized is that we couldn't guarantee then this as a sort of long-term solution. We could probably buy enough denieses now and could have got enough working for the study, but our vision of having that sustainable product and and something that that extends beyond the, the, the project wouldn't have made sense, it wouldn't have worked. And all it would have taken as well for this manufacturer to turn and say, right, we no longer want to support this type of project. And then all of a sudden we wouldn't be able to do anything. Um, so so this kind of, this, this put a dent in things. Um, but but not before we did some other work, actually I, I should say, this was um, some other interesting stuff that was valuable. So I mentioned before about the sort of credibility of what we were doing. Um, by having this cheap hardware, what we didn't want is for people to, to write it off. So if any of our um, people were did studies, we wanted then that data to be meaningful. So one of the things that the team did both here in Newcastle, but also uh, Tiago and the group in, in Portugal as well, is we conducted... Um, Uh, Sensor validation um, uh, studies as well. So we did signal response and then there was also the sort of traditional sit to walk stand test as well. So collected data where we compared these cheap uh, wearable devices, these sort of consumer technologies to um, what were at the time the sort of gold standard physical activity monitoring devices that costed maybe around 160 pounds, so significantly more than the, the price of the sensor we're getting. And what we found here is that actually they were comparable. Um, so so that, that was really exciting was that not only was this a cheap sensor that, that would have been sort of really good for our project and could be used, it also um, could achieve you know, comparable results to to what is the gold standard in physical activity movements. So, so that was exciting for this as a research platform. And in fact, I think yoga may have already presented some of this at the series and some of the data park stuff as well. So I'll not even go into any of that, I'll just keep quiet um so yeah so so it it was looking bleak in terms of despite our best efforts we couldn't secure a sort of a, a, a useful manufacturing process for this device the test runs were always inconsistent um and then as i say we had issues around then that sort of relationship with the manufacturer sort of refusing to to sort of guarantee a consistent production then for these what for us um so so what we started to do then was to look around and see well if we can't if we can't build our own uh, and and sort of use those existing components and do it, is there then an existing technology that might be open enough that would allow us then to sort of put our firmware onto it? So can we take advantage of the the fact that the software is nice and flexible, find a device that has a comparable set of hardware that would allow us then to do that? And and as luck would have it, we found this uh, really nice device. It's called an i5 activity band, Um, very similar form factor um, to, to what we had. This one actually had the addition of a screen um, which was nice. And uh, we actually could, what was even cooler is we didn't go to a manufacturer to find these. Instead, we went straight to Amazon and we we just found random bands that we ordered a bunch of them. And we we basically tried to see if we could reverse engineer them and, and, and tinker with them. And this one here, the bootloader, and it wasn't locked down, which meant that we could imprint our firmware on it. Um, And it was very easy for us to get it up and running again, which meant that we had that flexibility on the device. And what this meant is, in theory, if somebody bought this device from Amazon, they could load our software onto it and they could do it. So now we, in theory, had this sort of sustainable pipeline. So not only did we have a device that could work, we had a way then that we could give people access to this in the future allow them to do the same as well, which was great. uh, we tried to uh, negotiate um, some terms with the manufacturer to, to do a bulk order and large scale and get our stuff printed on it and things as well. And equally to try and secure us at a long-term pipeline because this wasn't an open source piece of hardware. It just so happened that we could sort of tinker with it. Um, but but we didn't get any further with that. Um, and then we did some looking around again and what we arrived at is this. And I'm happy to tell you, this is the one that we're going with, um, not least uh, because we've already ordered 1,250 of them and they're here and it's another 2,000 coming. Um, but this is also... Um, the perfect project for us. Um, so, so Pine64, if you've never heard of them, they're a really great community. So, they do these um, exciting open source projects. So, they do things from smartphones, tablets, um, like Raspberry Pi alternatives, and they also do this amazing smartwatch, this wearable. Um, And what's really cool about this is it it had the things we needed. In addition to it, it had some other cool sensors. There were some compromises. um, So you'll see here the sort of biggest one being the sort of battery life, you know, by having this sort of different type of display on it. But that was a compromise that we could live with. Um, What it did bring to the table, though, is that... um, you know, we had a community that was already there. We had an open source design that we could get manufactured in the future if they stopped making them. And we had, as I say, a process for how um, we could build on top of this and, and and make it work for our community as well. Um, Tiago, I'm conscious of time here. How am I looking?
0: Uh, we <laughs> well, we are getting to the end of the seminar, but ah, we would, oh, we would okay. like to hear the rest.
1: Oh, okay, uh, okay. Well, I'll be for quick for then. Some. I'll skip on then. So, yes. so in terms of the study then, so, so we have our device, we're, we're now using, as I say, this this open source hardware, we're, we're building on top of that, we're contributing back into that main community as well. So, so we'll build on top of their time open one and we're contributing. It's a little bit more expensive than we would first planned, um, but, but that's fine. Um, and uh, as I say, we, we in terms of this, we, we'll still need to do the signal validation for the sensors to make sure that this is on par, but we're, we're fairly confident. It's the same actual components at the low level that's in these as well, so, so it should be fine. Um, but but yeah, so so for for all intents and purposes, this was the perfect device for us. It comes stamped with all the necessary legal paperwork it needs in order to be distributed not only here in the UK but but globally, um, which is exciting. And, and we have, as I say, negotiated terms to be able to access in bulk, but also for individual individuals to be able to buy single devices as well in the future, um, which is fantastic. And, and this brings us then to the, to the Q-band project and where we are today then. So, so this is, as I say, what, what this has sort of evolved into is this, this Q-band wearables for Parkinson's project. Um, and this is what we've been funded to do. So what we have is this intervention trial plus. So, so we're doing our intervention of the, the wearable versus then a, a sort of mobile queuing system, which is the, the current state of the art and, and available technology for people in this space and we're doing this as a large-scale validation then of that queuing method in itself because that hasn't been done yet Um, previously it's only been done in lab settings and then we're also going to explore then the addition of of being able to think about and schedule queuing so this idea of of, you know can you can you think of queuing similar to the way we think of our heating schedules or lighting schedules so so, so can can somebody have a device that intervenes at that moment without them needing to think about it as well and there's some interest from the um, ai researchers working on the team who are interested to say okay can we can we infer that type of behavior as well uh, in the future so, so some interest around this sort of sh- scheduling and then the other big part of this is to say is that idea of, of generating new ideas and excitement around what, what this technology might do in the future so that's why we've got that extended two thousand seven hundred people involved in the project to, to hopefully come up with new things um, so in terms of the, the way the relationship works we have a, a smartphone app that we talk to the mobile phone for the study that's required, but in the future that the phone should work, the, the watch should work standalone. And in fact, you can use even the Bluetooth from your computer to, to program and set it up. So you can just open a web browser and do all that, which means that actually this technology doesn't mean you need to go and buy a thousand pound mobile phone, you could buy a 20 pound or 25 pound band and that could be your intervention. Uh, and so we've got some nice ideas around how that works in the future as well. In terms of the study, um, these two paths I mentioned before, we've got the intervention trial, We'll be doing various uh, questionnaires and surveys along the way, and then we have this other group uh, who are just sort of free living and using the device and and giving us feedback on that as well and, and their experiences. Um, and then what we also have is, is the apps are going to be source for free. So if anyone wants to use it and doesn't want to be involved in the study, they'll still be able to download the app and use it and buy one of these devices for themselves and still use it. So that is that we're making it available. So, so we're doing it different where normally you would do the research and eventually you would figure out the pipeline and get a product. Well, we're saying, right, we're doing it all together at once. We're just going to put it all out there and, and, and be open about the fact that this is a platform that we want to build on and experiment on. Um, So yeah, I'll try and distill into some meaningful things for you and I'll stop because I'm way over. Um, So in terms of this democratizing healthcare technology, so so what we need to be doing is providing opportunities for patients to have meaningful input much earlier in those design processes and throughout that design and development um, process. So in order to do that, we need to create those tools and enable the access that they're going to need um, in order to, to change, adapt and extend. Our digital technologies and these healthcare interventions. And then finally, we want to consider as I say that longevity. So it's not enough to think about your healthcare intervention and what you can prove today to researchers, but actually, can we from the point of inception think about this as being that sort of long-term commitment and relationship that somebody's going to make to your technology as well? Uh, so once again, I'd like to thank and acknowledge uh, my many collaborators involved in this work, somewhere in this room. It honestly wouldn't happen without the team. Uh, I do very little by comparison. So thank you.
0: Thank you, Kyle. Uh, uh, thank you very much. I will clap on the of everyone. Uh, ve- thank you very much for the, for the presentation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, you see some claps on, on the audience. Um, it, it's good to, de- to see your, your, uh, what I say is a different perspective. And uh, I think it opens and thinking about um, hardware as people think of software, I think it's a very powerful. Concept that allows you to think about appropriating these technologies. Um, <laughs> so, now questions. Less questions for Kyle.
1: Apologies as well for the disruption partway through.
0: I can maybe ask one. Go ahead. Uh, so, my question is about the whole democratizing healthcare are we not somehow also making people more accountable for their health and their health management by doing so? And if so, what are
1: the consequences uh, for people who don't want to engage and would like more of a transactional model? Yeah, great, great comment. And and I would argue we've already done that, Uh, particularly when you look at chronic conditions, these lifelong conditions, um, the vast majority of those already put those individuals in the driving seat, this expectation on them to, to do everything they can to manage. Uh, and then with that, you know, certainly in the UK, uh, I'm sure it's different in other places. The, the support that's available isn't being provisioned by our primary healthcare. Now, th- organizations like Parkinson's UK are charitable organisations that are filling the gaps. So these are sort of support groups that are run by volunteers. So in a, in a many ways, you know, the, the the healthcare support for for chronic conditions in particular, um, we already have put that burden on the individual because it's not sustainable for us as, as a healthcare to do it internally. Um, so so I think what we're talking about here is actually trying to do more to support them, managing with the responsibilities, the burden they've already got, um, and looking at ways that we might help them to be more effective in what they're already doing. And then to speak to your comment as well about the fact that, you know, some might be resistant to this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I don't take that lightly. And in fact, you know, your own work, Andrea, around, you know, people being forced and migrated into smartphone technologies and non-visual interactions, you know, the challenges around that we're going to see the same in spades around using healthcare technologies, that resistance. I think the the thing we need here is is just around actually those relationships that we build up and those the, the sort of uh, organisations like Parkinson's UK, who who should be the actors then that are sort of helping and supporting that and already provide some of that support already. And, and if you look at the, the sort of the way that they're structured, you know, they have these sort of regional networks across the UK, and I'm sure it's the same for other countries as well. And that support, is within those sort of hyper-local views. It's not something that's been centrally rolled out. It's something that's done in a very local capacity. So I I think what we need is those strategic relationships with them and to think about our technologies as not just being one-to-one relationship, me to the the customer or or that naive vision of a a healthcare professional to their patient, but instead thinking about those complex relationships and support that people get through other spheres and other sort of uh, constellations as well. Thank you.
0: Other questions? So I have one related, so I will I will ask it while people think of other questions. So, if I talk to a physician, people say, "Yeah, people go to Google and think they know everything and." then this creates a lot of problems. So I've heard my wife talking about this, that it creates a lot of anxiety. People get think they have all the illnesses uh, just because they use a search, a search engine. So I, I was here listening to you and I thought this in the past as well. So if we talk to some clinicians about these approaches, what are the reactions and how is, their view, and I know that probably uh, in some cases can be um, against what you are trying to uh, to go towards here. And, and the other thing is, how is that possible to then have these good collaborations that I, I see that you have in this, uh, that we have in this project, for example, where we are doing the same thing, the two things at the same time. So we are working towards more I would say a clinical study but also at the same time enabling this appropriation and this democratization so can you tell us a little bit about that and how, how you see these challenges and a little bit confrontations
1: um, yeah um, so yeah so I think that that sort of tension around then um, you know the the individual becoming an expert through Google uh, yeah I, I fully appreciate that one without a doubt I, I think um, What we hope to try and achieve this, and I guess the intention as well around a lot of these um, health applications, you know, for, for people to download and use on their smartphones and whatnot, is around actually that individual being a bit more better informed about themselves and providing them with potentially... Uh, a boundary object that they can use to support themselves in some of those discussions, um, and, and you know, I, I would argue that you know, it's certainly uh, in the UK we're seeing a lot more of this around that sort of social prescribing and, and, and prescription of um, technologies and apps and things. You know, outside of even just the um, sort of research trials, actually, as part of the sort of um, the sort of mainstream delivery of our healthcare, and and even our NHS, you know, building and creating their own applications around these. So. We're seeing more and more push towards that. I think that the challenge we've got with these is that they're built with a particular agenda in mind um, and it doesn't necessarily sort of map to the interest then of those those individuals, those users. Um, I think what we will have and what we'll hopefully see in the future is um, more of a discussion around actually how these things start to integrate and I know there has been I'm, I'm, you know, some work in this in in, uh, in the past where people have looked at these sort of um, sort of technology mediated um, um, uh, clinical appointments you know and, and this, is a, this is as I say not, not a sort of new space but it's one that we need to tread into again but actually can we go in there not with a device then that has been prescribed by the healthcare researcher where they themselves have the power and they bring that individual in where that power dynamic still exists as well to then talk at them about their results but actually can we do it in a way where there's a bit more of a level playing field and where that individual is recognized and valued as being an expert in their own health because you know we trust them enough to manage the condition without us we send them off into the wild and we'll say we'll see you in six months and um, so 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 should, we should be able to trust them to be able to understand and interpret then the sort of data that they're coming through and, and to have a sensible conversation with them um so a uh, cheat's answer is i don't know yet tiago um i i definitely think that this is going to it's going to turn heads and it's, it's going to be so met with some tension without a doubt um, and, and I think you know it's going to be interesting as well, particularly when you start to think that, well, will these groups start to sort of challenge and contest the things that we're we're seeing, you know, much in the way that, that patients like me did the same, where they challenged and contested those those um, um, uh, papers that have been published in the sort of drug trials. But equally, I would argue, that might be then a role for us. You know, we, we talk a lot about, and I see Hugo's hand up as well, so I'll you know, talk about these sort of universities as a service. And, and this idea then of actually what's the capacity that we as institutions and we as researchers might bring in media in those relationships as well. So can we provide the tools that provide that trustworthy information as opposed to it being bad information they might find in Google? Can we provide then the tools and infrastructures that better support that mediation and that discussion? So So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work still to be done in that space. Um, and, and I'm sure AI is going to fall into that at some point as well. It's been an interesting one there, you know. So at what point, you know, do we need to care? It's not an opinion of Google. It's an opinion of the same AI that the GP was going to use anyway, you know. So so that might actually become a point that you know it's 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 a moot point. Uh, but yeah. Waffle dancer. So Ugo. No,
0: that's great. Thank you, Ugo. Uh, I'm not sure question. how you. I'm not sure how you guessed my question, but uh, yeah. So thank you for the talk. Very very cool work. Uh, so my question is actually related with this idea of having university as a service or research as a service for that matter, and um, how you actually engage with individuals and communities and build long-term relationship uh, with them. So my question is twofold. So the first one is, what are your like, current uh, approaches or strategies to maintain these rel- relationships, which is something that it's not easy to, to do? And the second one is more on the ethical implications of this, particularly when you leave out. So projects end and sometimes you need to end relationships as well, or at least not engage as much with with those communities. So what are your thoughts on this? How can we do this in an ethical way? Uh,
1: Thanks for the nice, straightforward, easy question, Hugo, much appreciated. Uh, no, no, I, I think it's a fantastic question and and definitely one that I think this project in particular, we really rattled ourselves, trying to come up with a sensible approach and strategy to this. Um, so so you know in, in terms of this this idea then of of um, you know if we take the the, the sort of University as a service one, you know, this is one that, yeah, I definitely think, you know, we we need to see more examples of that. All too often, a lot of the research that we see coming out, and again, this is not criticism of anyone, this is just the way research was done, is that it's taking from people, you know, we we work with people in order to satisfy our needs. Um, One of the things that we've tried to sort of do In this work and in previous works, taking the digital civics approach is actually looking more at this idea of the value of capacity that we as researchers might bring and what is the value that that research might bring to those individuals or those communities. And and as a result, the the methodology that we use, the approach we take is very different. So a lot of the time we're talking about sort of action based research where we're not going in with a promise of a cure in 10 years or 20 years or beyond. We're thinking, actually, yeah, that might be the long-term goal, but but what are some immediate benefits that you will experience today as well? And, and you know, I think the easy way to look at, you know, are, are you bringing benefits to your participants? Is to take a look at your information sheet, and in that section where it asks, what are the benefits of the research? If all you've written in there is that, you know, people enjoy taking part of research, then actually you're probably not bringing enough value to the table here. Um, so so as I say, we were very critical of ourselves to this, and I think that's why this project in particular. Um, One of the things and and the reason for doing two things at once is that we're fairly confident in the intervention um, from the lab study. Um, and, and And we believe that it will bring value you know for, from the from the conversations we 've had with people through these support groups, so we saw then there was a need for a technology to exist, an immediate benefit that we could potentially bring to this population um, and and you know if it turns out that actually that technology isn't as, isn't more effective than the than the um, smartphone device, it still potentially brings something to the table they maybe didn't have that smartphone device or, or they maybe weren't using it for that purpose so So I think from that point of view, with this one, we looked at it and said, right, that's the immediate benefit. Um, We also saw this as as a potential seed to start other things. So so by making it something that was theirs, the design of the technology as well puts the data and their ownership and control what we've tried to set up is the ability for them in the future to have a bit more power and agency in future conversations about research that might happen either within their community or as they interact with other researchers as well. Um, and, and I think that's that transformation that we're gonna see everywhere around this relationship and that university as a service is that actually, we're, we're not just gonna be the ones that are gonna take anymore. We need to be a bit more relational in the way that we work. Um, so, so in, and then to go back to another one around actually, when the project ends and we disappear, I kind of hinted at that, so one of the things that we we wanted was to make sure that actually it wasn't just us, so so the partners we've involved, the Digital Parkinson's group, are a group of individuals who live with this condition, who are committed to this, and and they will always be committed to this, and, and they are a strong community of people who are interested in working in this. Parkinson's UK themselves are this, this huge charitable organization that are basically fighting for people with Parkinson's both to try and find a cure, but also looking at those everyday solutions. And they provide this amazing support infrastructure. So again, they're an amazing actor. So what we've done is we've tried to make sure that we've aligned ourselves and our research with them uh, and, and provisioning them that exit strategy from the start. So so, so we, I want to stay involved in this, even when there isn't the funding, you know and, and testament to, to the early stages, working with you and Tiago and Andrea and, and Diogo, when we weren't funded you know we're passionate about this but equally I recognize that there needs to be somebody who is at the helm so so what we've agreed and what we've set up as part of the project is that at the end of those 18 months we sign over the apps and the technology all to Parkinson's UK so those open source that the ones that are rolled out at the moment they have control they have access to all the keys of the kingdom so it becomes theirs um, and, and, and then we are then still involved but on the outside. And, and the hope then is that that's a commitment then for them to do more with it as well. And that's the way we've sort of built it and talked about it with them and what we wrote into the grant. So, so I think that's the other strategy you need is, is um, not necessarily taking the role and building that capacity within a community, but this idea of, of trying to level up that community and, and recognising that when you step back, there is a void and there needs to be somebody that fills that role. Um, and that negotiation, the earlier you can have that and, and the more you think about that, the, the, the better your possibility then of sustaining these things. I think I got them all, hopefully. Cheers.
0: Okay, everyone, thank you so much for coming and thank you, Kyle, <laughs> for the interesting talk and the response to the questions. I look forward to seeing the outcomes of this project. You too. <laughs> Cheers. Yes. Thank you very much. Bye. We have another seminar next week, so stay stay tuned. See ya.